So Job chapter 42, um, starting at verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. The second reading is from the letter of James on pages 1215 of the Church Bibles, starting from verse 1 of chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives graciously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because... Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, 
and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Morning, everyone. Thomas, thanks very much for reading. Please do keep your Bibles open. Well, let me pray together as we look at uh, James. James says later on, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Heavenly Father, we praise you very much for uh, the extraordinary privilege we have of gathering around your word this morning. And we pray that you would grant us humility. Please help us to be not simply hearers, but doers. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the longest-running reality TV shows is I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. You may have watched some of it. A number of celebrities are put in a jungle environment for a number of weeks. They're put through a, a, a number of trials, none of which are for the squeamish, as far as I can work out, each one competing to be crowned queen or king of the jungle. It's a clever title. They are celebrities. At any point when the hardships and deprivations get too great, they can simply drop out and go home. Well, it seems to me there's a Christian equivalent to that game show, something like, I'm a Christian, get me out of here. I think it's how, if we're honest, many of us respond when life is hard. We pray, perhaps, along the lines of, I don't like this, this painful, scary, uncertain situation. Please get me out of here. Take away the, the pain, the hard situation, the uncertainty, and then life will be much better. I wonder if you can relate to that kind of prayer. I certainly can. Now, I've been recommending this book by Paul Mallard, Invest Your Suffering, over these last couple of weeks or so. His wife, Idri, became ill when she was pregnant with their fourth child. After a number of visits to doctors and consultants, she was diagnosed with a chronic degenerative disorder, which has meant that she's had to live her life in a wheelchair for the last 30 years. And the book takes you on their journey together. But the title is not, Lord, get me out of here. The title is, Invest Your Suffering. And as we know, an investment brings a return. Because one of the wonderful privileges of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ is that we can view suffering and hardship very differently, very differently from the world around us. If you're not yet a Christian, then I hope you've begun to see that through this series of talks on hardship. And this morning we're looking at the letter of James, where God wants us to see that the trials of life provide us with a unique opportunity if only we had grasp it. But to do that, we need to know two things. We need, firstly, to know how to think about hardship, and secondly, we need to know how to pray 
about hardship. Firstly, how to think about hardship. Have a look at verses 1 and 2. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Ah, oh, wonderful, it's now up on the screen as well, excellent. Thanks, James. Now, I don't know about you, but verse 2 makes me feel very uncomfortable. It seems so at odds with experience. The hardships of the last few months, certainly for me, have not been joyful. They have been difficult. But what James is describing here is not some kind of spiritual Christian who is in a different league from the rest of us. Now, to understand what he's saying, I think it's helpful to focus on two phrases. Firstly, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, the James of verse 1 is most likely the the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He's addressing these Christians, notice in verse 1, as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In other words, he's using Old Testament language to describe New Testament believers. Like the 12 tribes of Israel, they belong to God as his special people. And like them, after the exile, they are dispersed. They are scattered in the world. It means that for the Christian, trials will come, and trials of various kinds will come. Some because we live in a world that is hostile to Jesus. Trials which come our way, in other words, specifically because we belong to him. Opposition, persecution, hatred even, as we were thinking about in John chapter 15 a few weeks ago. Others come because like the exiled believers of the Old Testament, we haven't yet reached our final destination. We still live in a fallen, groaning world. And although Christians are a special people, we are not a protected species. We experience the same hardships and difficulties as everyone else. (coughs) Illness, (coughs) accidents, unemployment, hardness, bereavement, sadness, pain, unexpected events. The second phrase I want us just to think about is count it all joy. That is very strange, isn't it? Now, of course, for the unbeliever, trials can only ever be bad because this life is all we get. And therefore, we need to make the most of all the joy and and happiness and fulfillment we can. But for the Christian, life is very different. The word count means come to a settled conviction. It's about making a definitive decision about the nature of trials as a time of joy. Now, let's not get James wrong here. He's not calling on us to deny reality, you know, to pretend that hardship is joyous when it's obviously not, but rather to think differently from the way in which we would naturally think about it such that amidst the tears and anger and confusion, there is also a learned response of joy which sets us apart from those 
who don't know the Lord Jesus. When you say, that all sounds fine in theory, but what does that look like and how is it possible in practice? Well, because verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness, not kind of gritting your teeth to get through it, but growth in Christian character, perseverance, being firmed up as a Christian believer. And notice verse 4, with a clear end in sight, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfection. The word doesn't so much mean perfect as well-developed. It's a word that's about maturity, completeness, lacking in nothing. Now, in your better moments, do you not long to be that kind of Christian? You see, the danger is that we only interpret hardship negatively because we lose sight of the God-given purpose. Instead, we're to count hardship and trials as joy precisely because of what our Heavenly Father achieves through them. Lots of things in life are like that in many ways. The joy of doing hard, difficult, challenging things, even painful things, because of what they achieve. You know, perhaps going to the gym or, or going for a run or, or swimming in the unheated swimming pool in Brockwell Park. Yeah, enjoyable. Certainly doesn't look like it as you see people pacing round Dunwich Park for three miles on a Saturday morning. And yet, there is an enjoyment in it. The knowledge that it's purposeful. You're getting stronger, fitter, more resilient. Would you like to be stronger and more resilient as a disciple of the Lord Jesus? More prayerful? A greater love for him, a deeper delight in his word, perhaps less wavering in your loyalty to him, perhaps more consistent in your uh, lifestyle, more consistent in your witness to colleagues and friends, less erratic in your conduct, clearer on the gospel, with greater staying power, consistency, endurance, and stickability. Alec Matea says in his commentary on these verses, and I put the quotes on the outline, there is no trial, no great calamity or small pressure, no overwhelming sorrow or small rub of life that is outside the plan of God, whereby it is a stepping stone to glory. And it is for this reason that our settled conviction must be to appraise it as all joy. Not because it is joyful in itself, but because it is the only way forward to become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Because the fact is that pain and trials change us in the way that happiness rarely does. I think we all know this from our experience. You know, I can enjoy a wonderful holiday, full of fun, relaxing, and I can feel rested afterwards. But actually, that holiday won't change me deeply on the inside. And a few weeks later, you know how it is, you feel you need another holiday. Whereas trials do, those in our youth group, stud uh, jam, studying Ecclesiastes on Sunday evenings, 
One of the questions the book asks is, if you were given two invitations, one to a funeral and the other to a party, which one would you accept? Assuming they were both at the same time, you couldn't go to both. I got the invitations here, one to a funeral, somber black, the other to a party, bright and exciting orange. You can't go to them both. Which one would you go to? Well, the answer's obvious. You go to the funeral. You go to the funeral. Because you'll learn so much more from it. What's life about? <clears throat> what matters in life? What's next? You won't learn any of those things from the party. But here's the catch. In verse 3, the idea that trials produce perseverance and steadfastness, it's not a sort of passive process. James is not saying that all you need to do is to experience enough trials in your life and you'll grow to maturity. Because when life is hard, we can so often, can't we, find ourselves kicking and fighting against it. We can rail against God. We can find ourselves angry and so upset that my plans for my life have been disrupted that we end up losing sight of what God is actually doing. Do you see? It's not that the trials themselves automatically produce steadfastness. Rather, it is our perseverance under trials that produces steadfastness. Just think of Job in the Old Testament. We had that reading from the end of Job, and we've already uh, thought about James chapter 5, verse 11, which also mentions Job. Just flick over to it. James chapter 5, verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Do you notice it's that steadfast word again? James experienced the most terrible suffering. He wasn't told why he was going through it. And yet at the end, he kneels down before God in that chapter we had read to us. And he says something like this. He says, God, you are great. You're wise. You're big. You're clever. I don't know why I've gone through all this stuff. But I now trust you, and I know you are glorious, and I am in awe of you. Now, I wouldn't wish Job's sufferings on anyone, and yet it was wonderfully purposeful. That is how you and I are to think about hardship. We're to count it as joy because it is purposeful. So imagine for a moment that you're writing down all the experiences of your life. You've got an hour or two, and uh, there are a couple of uh, columns on a piece of paper. So one column is headed joy at the top. The other column is headed, is headed miserable at the top. And you go through all the experiences of your life, and you've either got to put them in the, the joyful column or the miserable column. James is saying that in our thinking, we need to put the trials of life in the joyful column. And of course, because we so easily put them in the miserable column, or they might start in the joyful column, but then they kind of nudge over into the miserable column, 
we need to make sure we keep putting them in the joyful column and that they stay there. Not because they feel joyful, they probably won't, but because they help us mature as Christians and they keep us following Jesus rather than drifting away from him. So how to think about hardship. Secondly, how to pray about hardship, verses 5 to 11. Now, we don't tend to think of trials as joy because we don't tend to focus on what the Lord is doing through them. My prayer back in the autumn was simply, Lord, get me out of here. I want to feel better. And while it's good to pray for healing, and we see that later on in the letter of James, we also need to pray for wisdom. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. How do you pray for yourself and others when life is tough? If growth groups are anything to go by, it's often, Lord, please will you fix this problem because I just want life to get back to normal again. But do we pray for wisdom? That we'd see trials as the Lord Jesus sees trials. That we wouldn't lose sight of their purpose. That we'd have joy in them. Now, of course, it may well be that actually, if we're honest with ourselves in our hearts, this isn't really a journey that we want to go down. It just feels too hard, too painful, and too challenging. In which case, will you just focus on verse 5 for a moment? Because I, I love the way it starts with the phrase, let him ask God who gives generously. It literally uh, means, let him ask the giving God. Because, of course, it's God's character to give. The most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. One of the great temptations when life is hard is to forget that God is a giving God or to imagine that he's perhaps in the habit of giving us gifts that actually we'd rather not have or even that he is the withholding God rather than the giving God. But he is the giving God and he will continue to give. And that is why he doesn't simply helicopter us out of trials, because that would keep us immature and lacking in steadfastness. Instead, he continues to be generous. Even in the hardest of circumstances, he continues to give. And that may be just the encouragement that some of us need to hear this morning. And yet we need to see that there's also a warning. Have a look at verses 6 to 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the winds. For that person mustn't suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Now let's be clear, James is not talking here about honest doubts 
He's not saying we need to have perfect faith. After all, when life is hard, uh, we inevitably have uh, plenty of fears and lots of questions. Instead, it's a warning about the danger of trying to go in two directions at the same time. Or as he puts it in verse 8, the danger of being double-minded, literally double-souled. It's one of the themes of the letter, such that on the one hand, we read uh, James 1, verses 2 to 4, and we think to ourselves, and we, uh, we think, yep, I'm going to think, uh, you know, and, and think and pray. I want to be like that as a Christian. I do want to be steadfast. I do want to be mature. I do want to be complete. And that's the end to which I'm going to pray when life is difficult. And yet on the other hand, we still want to be successful. We still want to live the kind of life that we have mapped out for ourselves, the, the easy, comfortable, successful life that we imagine everyone else is living. In other words, a double-minded conflict between, on the one hand, our loyalty to the Lord Jesus and his agenda, and on the other hand, we feel torn by the world's agenda. The sort of prayers, perhaps, that say, Lord, I want your help in trouble so I can be in control and get my life back on track again. Now, instead, we're to pray with a genuine trust in God's good purposes, not our own. In other words, trusting that the, the jigsaw that he is creating and assembling with all the different pieces of our lives is so much greater and more wonderful than the jigsaw that we would make with the different pieces of our lives. And parents, we can so easily be double-minded as well, can't we, in the way in which we pray for our children. Of course we want them to, to follow Jesus, but we can so often also want them to have everything the world offers, whether it's uh, the best education or academic success or sporting or musical achievements or whatever it is, or a good job or comfortable lifestyle. And in our double-mindedness, we can find ourselves uh, protecting them from trials and therefore depriving them of one of the great ways in which the Lord God, in his kindness, works in them. Or perhaps even we find ourselves railing against God and getting angry with God as our children face trials and we lose sight of his good, fatherly, ever-giving purpose for them. Many of us will have heard of Joni Erickson. She lived a very active life all the way through her uh, teenage years, horse riding, swimming, uh, running, tennis, and so on. Until as a teenager in the 1960s, she dived into the sea, but tragically she misjudged the depth of the water, and she was left paralyzed from the shoulders down. In 2010, she received a diagnosis of cancer from which she recovered. In 2018, she received a second diagnosis of cancer. And this is what she wrote on receiving that second diagnosis. When I received the unexpected news of cancer from my surgeon, I relaxed and smiled, knowing that my sovereign God loves me dearly and holds me tightly in his hands. What good is it if we only trust the Lord when we understand his ways? That only guarantees a life filled with doubts. Now, we may not all be able to think that immediately on hearing a diagnosis like that. 
but the Lord Jesus would love us to think like that over time, even if we can't do it immediately. Now, verses 9 to 11, James gives us, gives us a worked example of what this kind of wisdom he's talking about looks like in practice. Have a look at that paragraph. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It's a simple illustration. You may have little money. And yet James reminds us that in the Lord Jesus, you have all of God's good riches. Or you may be wealthy, in which case we're to see that our wealth and possessions, they don't last And they're no more permanent than the daffodils, which look so splendid in March, but have now vanished and disappeared. It means the Christian who has little can rejoice because in Christ they have much. And the Christian who has much can rejoice because they're in Christ. And therefore they have the one thing that will actually last. Now, the illustration is about poverty and riches, but it could equally well be about a whole range of other contrasting experiences of life, illness and health, loneliness and companionship, happiness and sadness. Do you see how James wants to move us on from being stuck with our present experience and reality to instead having an eternal perspective and being shaped by eternal realities? Not double-minded, with a foot in both camps, but having our circumstances transformed by an eternal perspective. The alternative, of course, verse 6, is to be unstable, like a wave of the sea at the mercy of the wind, without an anchor when the storms of life hit. It's why the way we respond to trials when they come, is so very important. Trials are a great opportunity which we can either take and grow in our faith and grow as disciples of the Lord Jesus, or we can reject them and become destabilized, possibly even destroyed in our faith. I'm sure all of us know Christians have experienced trials And they've grown through it, they've matured, and it's wonderful to see some in this room. But I guess some of us may know others who actually, in the face of trials, have become unstable and doubting and drifted away from Jesus. And if we know people like that, it is a great act of love to seek to bring them back. Yes, in testing times, everything can seem out of control. We don't know what's coming next, or at least it feels as if things are out of control and we don't know what's coming next. But the Lord Jesus reassures us that what is coming is transformation. At the end, we will be a finished work of great worth, and great beauty.
That should transform both the way in which we think about hardship as well as the way in which we pray about hardship. Let's have a few moments for reflection and then I shall lead us in prayer. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are the great giver. And we praise you that even when times are hard and life is difficult, perhaps because we know the Lord Jesus or perhaps just because we live in a fallen world, we praise you that you continue to give generously. And we pray, Heavenly Father, might that shape the way in which we think about hardship and pray about hardship? And might it help as well uh, and, uh, and shape the way in which we seek to encourage and draw alongside others in the face of hardship? And we ask it in Jesus' name.